Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here today. Well, last week, as we moved through Daniel chapter 2, we learned a lot about King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And quite frankly, none of it was good. Nebuchadnezzar was a dreamer, but he couldn't seem to fully remember his disturbing dream. On top of that, he was demanding. He expected his wise men to tell him what the dream was and to discern its meaning. And Nebuchadnezzar could be cruel. When no wise man could do what he asked, he sentenced all of them to death. But that's when our old friend Daniel came through. Or perhaps more accurately, God came through. God gave Daniel the answers to Nebuchadnezzar's questions. Daniel spoke to the king and lives were saved. Chapter two even ended with Nebuchadnezzar, of all people, worshiping the one true God. But as we'll see today, that worship was short lived. Our text this morning, Daniel chapter three, contains one of the most famous, beloved and dramatic stories of God's power to deliver his people in the entire Bible. But one of the most fascinating parts of Daniel three is what it doesn't contain. In chapter three, Daniel, the man this entire book is named after is nowhere to be found. Why is Daniel absent? The easiest explanation might be that he was off traveling on some royal business. But I also like to think that Daniel's absence here is yet another reminder that the book of Daniel isn't just about Daniel. The book of Daniel is about God. And this morning, God is once again going to deliver his people from certain death. But Daniel 3 also raises a challenging question for us to consider. What if he doesn't? So open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as people made in your image with dignity and worth and value. And thank you that though we are sinners, every one of us, you are at work restoring your image within us. You are at work helping us learn to be the people you made us to be learning to be your children, learning to be your servants. And that all comes back to the cross. That all comes back to Christ, our moment of redemption. So, Lord, thank you for our redemption through Christ's body, through Christ's blood. And thank you that you are changing us and shaping us and forming us to be the people you say we are and to be the people you call us to be by faith in Christ, by the power of your spirit. And, Lord, thank you that you've given us so much in this life. You've given us everything eternally, but you owe us nothing. You are generous, you are gracious, you are kind, and it is a privilege to worship you this morning. And I pray that our worship would be honoring to you 
that it would be beneficial for us as we come here with pains and weaknesses and failures. Maybe we come with joys and successes and triumphs from the past week. But Lord, whether we need to be comforted or humbled, I pray that you would do what you need to do for us through your word, through the music that we sing, through the prayers that we pray. Uh, I pray that you would shepherd us today and that our worship worship would be honoring to you today. Again, we love you. We love you. We glorify you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. This thing was very tall and very narrow, about 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. We wondered last week if Nebuchadnezzar would really learn anything from his frightening dream. And sadly, it appears the answer is no. His dream was of a massive statue made of gold, silver, bronze, and iron mixed with clay. Four sections representing four kingdoms, but ultimately struck down by God's kingdom. And in that dream, Babylon, of course, was the head of gold. Now, Nebuchadnezzar should have learned that worldly kingdoms come and go, including his. But rather than being humbled, it appears Nebuchadnezzar was emboldened. Instead of reflecting on his own frailty, he may have started thinking of ways to prolong his reign and to shore up his power. In his dream, the statue was split into four sections, four different materials, representing four kingdoms. But this statue is all gold, from top to bottom. In Nebuchadnezzar's mind, there's only room for one kingdom, and it's his. Now, as we read those verses, you may have wondered, what's the point of those lists. The list of instruments may strike us as a bit odd. 
It's repeated so many times. But look at it this way. The repetition really stresses that any time anyone hears any kind of music in Babylon, they are expected to hit their knees in worship. And the other seemingly unnecessary list, satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, officials, peoples, nations, and languages. It, too, is obnoxiously redundant in these verses. Maybe that's stressing to us that all people of Babylonian society, from the wise men to the dog catcher, are expected to worship Nebuchadnezzar's idol. I suspect the other reason for these lists is that the repetition ratchets up the peer pressure. It's a long-winded way of sending a very simple message, one that we hear today as well. Everybody's doing it, and they're doing it all the time. At least almost everyone. Verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So Daniel's three friends refuse to participate. As we said, turning the focus away from Daniel and toward these three men may be another subtle reminder that this book isn't just about Daniel. He's not the true hero of the story. He's not even the only faithful Jew. These three men also know that there's only one God Worthy of worship. They also know that this one true God has commanded that his people have no other God before him and that they must never bow down or serve a false image. And that's when some of their Babylonian peers, perhaps out of jealousy, expose their lack of compliance to Nebuchadnezzar. So what will the king do? Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, 
you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Religious freedom exemptions did not exist in Babylon. So when the three men are called to account, Nebuchadnezzar essentially asks three simple questions. Is it true? Are the accusations against these men legitimate? Will you recant? If given another chance, will Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get with the program? And finally, is it worth it? Nebuchadnezzar has a fiery furnace with their name on it if they are unwilling to cooperate. These three men have already had their feet held to the fire metaphorically in the book of Daniel. But now it's literal. Will they remain faithful at the cost of their lives? The three men give Nebuchadnezzar three answers. Yes, it's true. There may even be a hint of sarcasm or defiance in their response. No, we won't recant. They fear the king of heaven more than the king of Babylon. And by their refusal to recant, they answer the third question. Apparently, they do think that faithfulness to God is worth a fiery death. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego clearly state in verse 17 that God can deliver them from their fate. But notice what they say in verse 18. Even if God doesn't, it won't change a thing. These men would rather die in faith than live in sin. Now, they have plenty of reason for confidence in God's ability to deliver them. He did it back in chapter 1 when they stuck their necks out there and refused to eat the king's food. He delivered them in chapter 2 when they were moments away from being torn limb from limb. Saved them from harm. When it comes to delivering his people, God is batting a thousand in the book of Daniel. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bring up that challenging question we asked earlier. What if this time he doesn't? Now, it's important to emphasize that these three men bringing up the possibility that this time around God might not save them. That is not evidence of a lack of faith. Again, they know God's power better than most. 
They display incredible courage that they couldn't possibly muster up apart from a deep and abiding faith. And as we saw, they have no problem looking Nebuchadnezzar in the eye and insisting that God is far stronger than he is. They don't lack faith. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have the wisdom. They have the humility. They have the honesty to say out loud that God might not deliver them. And what if he doesn't? For them, that possibility doesn't change anything. But be honest. Does that possibility change anything for us? Picking up in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree... Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. We saw Nebuchadnezzar's cruelty in chapter 2. And we see it again in chapter 3. He shows total disregard for human life. Nebuchadnezzar's own soldiers are killed just so he can prove a point. 
But you know who doesn't die? Those three faithful men. In fact, they're miraculously joined by a fourth. Now, there's long been fascination over the identity of that fourth man. Is he an angel? Is it a vision of the pre-incarnate Jesus? We don't know for sure. But we know that God delivers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And once again, the thin-skinned, thick-headed, and hard-hearted king learns a valuable lesson. But we've seen this story before, haven't we? Sure, Nebuchadnezzar exhibits some form of conviction, repentance, faith, and worship. He even honors the three men who openly defied him, which can't be easy for a king to do. But we also saw how short-lived this conversion was at the end of chapter 2. Will this one be any different? So in the end, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego once again experienced God's deliverance, like they had several times before. But what if they hadn't? What if the furnace really had done them in? What if that mysterious fourth man hadn't appeared? What if the story had ended with these three men reduced to ashes? rather than exalted to positions of power. For these three men, that different ending wouldn't have changed a thing. Because these three men do not worship God for what he can do for them. They do not worship God for what he might do for them. They worship God for who he is is the same true for us. I'm really not sure I can overstate how much that question matters. Too often we have an assumed, unstated, unbiblical theology that treats our faith and treats God himself as a means to an end. We view faith as a kind of currency that we exchange for worldly rewards, help, or avoidance of suffering. If I just give God the right amount of currency, faith, he is then obligated to bless me. It may be as grand as expecting God to always give us physical health, financial prosperity, and earthly success. Or it may be as small as expecting God to give us a prime parking spot on a rainy day. The mentality boils down to this. If I just believe strongly enough, pray frequently enough, or declare, name, and claim goals, desires, and blessings confidently enough, then I can twist God's arm into giving me what I want. A theology like that, the kind openly preached and practiced by some churches and Christians, but that can also sneak into churches like ours and Christians like us, 
That kind of theology is a shallow, dangerous, heaping pile of garbage fit for Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. God is not a vending machine. He's not a transaction partner. He's not an errand boy. God is not a means to an end. He is the end. And whether God does what we ask him to do or not, whether he spares us from every persecution, illness, disaster, job loss, divorce, or any other worldly hardship we can think up, he still deserves our worship. He still deserves our obedience. He still deserves our faithfulness. Those things are not contingent upon God doing everything we ask him to do. We worship him for who he is. And he never changes. That is more than enough reason to love him. Of course, this is hard for us to grasp in a day and age characterized by emotivism, therapeutism, and instant gratification. We often expect to be spared from every unpleasant feeling, every unexplainable suffering, and every inconvenience of waiting. And God surely does, and surely can spare us from those things, and he probably does it more than we will ever realize. But he is not obligated to do so. Our faith does not ensure us that he will do so. The Bible makes that much clear. Job suffered more devastation in a day than many of us will experience in a lifetime. It certainly was not for a lack of faith. And somehow Job can say, though he slay me, I will hope in him. The psalmist understood that faith is no guarantee that we will be delivered from every danger or threat. And even though God may test us and try us, we still have reason to sing the glory of his name. The Apostle Paul understood this as well. Though Paul endured immense hardship and begged God to take away the afflictions that he faced, he also knew that God's grace was sufficient for him. All of these saints suffered faithfully. They worshipped God for who he is, not just for what he can do. That's important for us to remember because there may come a moment when we find ourselves in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's shoes. We will be expected to worship idols, bow down before rulers, and participate or celebrate in sin. Everybody's doing it all the time. We'll be tempted to compromise. We may even find ways of arguing that what is clearly a compromise isn't actually a compromise. Well, God wants me to provide for my family, and I can't do that if I lose my job, so I should probably just go along with the sin. Yeah, I bow down to the idol externally, but I didn't really mean it internally. 
You know, I'll just compromise now and ask for forgiveness later. I don't want to harm my credibility with sinners, so I'll just give a little bit of ground here. It's strategic. We are gifted practitioners of justifying and rationalizing cowardice. And there is no guarantee that God will spare us from negative consequences of that choice. But our faith, our obedience, and our worship are not contingent upon that anyway. We worship God for who he is. If he delivers us, great. We worship. And if he doesn't, we'll worship him then too. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Peter writes, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And in chapter 4, verse 12, Peter continues. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The Apostle Peter had no qualms about calling Christians to faithfully suffer injustice. Because our Lord faithfully suffered injustice. But Jesus knew that the father's refusal to take the cup of the cross away from him did not negate his goodness, his sovereignty, and his love. The son's obedience to the father was not contingent upon deliverance from worldly suffering. And in the end, Jesus' faith was vindicated in his resurrection. And because Jesus was not delivered from his suffering, at least not right away, we can endure our own seasons of suffering. We can look ahead with confidence, knowing that while God may not deliver us from the furnace's flames, he will surely deliver us from hells. And that is more than enough reason to thank him. 
more than enough reason to praise him and obey him now, no matter how much heat we face down the road. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that you've given to us. Thank you for this time in your word. And thank you for this incredible story that we've probably heard before, that we've maybe seen depicted in Sunday school lessons and cartoons and flannel graphs. And it never gets old. It's, it's an amazing story of your deliverance. And it ranks right up there with the dramatic stories of the Exodus or the sun standing still. But at the same time, Lord, this story teaches us more than just your power to deliver. It challenges us to be faithful if and when you don't deliver us. We've all been there when we want something to be different. We pray for help. We pray for healing. We pray for answers and the help or the healing or the answers don't come the way we wanted them to come. Lord, I pray that in those moments, when you don't do what we ask you to do, that we would still trust that you are good, still trust that you are sovereign, still trust that you love us, and still give you the worship and the praise that you deserve. Thank you that you will deliver us, that you have delivered us from sin and death and hell, that though we die, we will live. Thank you that sin no longer has the hold on us that it once did. That we don't have to fear hell's flames. Because we know who you are and we know what you've done. And that doesn't change no matter how many hardships or trials or sufferings we face in this life. Help us look forward to that deliverance. To give us hope and endurance and peace and joy. Even as we're not delivered from every hard thing for now. Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for his death, his resurrection. And Lord, I pray that you would find us faithful when you come in power and glory. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.